Welcome to Perfectly Imperfect, a podcast on mental health for folks of color. I'm your host, John Zell Anderson, licensed professional counselor. I'm the owner of Panoramic Counseling, where I specialize in treating teens and young adults in Richmond, Virginia, and throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia through online counseling. Let's get into the show. This episode is part of a summer book club that I'm hosting on this podcast. In efforts to read and write more on topics related to race and injustice, I decided to log out of my Instagram account for the summer, and I'm instead focusing my time and energy here. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me for the last part of three of this review that I'm doing of Emmanuel Acho's book, Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. So this final part of the book is under the theme of we, and I like how the book was structured because it's it, the first two sections kind of cover history and problems and systemic racism and social issues that persist today. And then the final section kind of talks about what the next steps are, and it includes uh, information on how to be an ally to people of color and also how to how everyone, including people of color, can work together to combat racism as it impacts us today. So the first chapter in this section is called Good Trouble Fighting for Change. So I'm going to start off with a quote. Throughout all this history, white privilege has ruled how these conflicts were described. When it was white people instigating the violence, the media, politicians, law enforcement, and eventually historians called what was a massacre a race riot. When Black people started to initiate the protests. The media called what was a rebellion a riot, a description meant to portray all white people, citizens, property owners, business people, some of whom were in on the oppression as persecuted victims of unjustified black anger and hostility, while also making white policing of the situation, no matter how brutal, into a heroic or at least justified response, end quote. H.O. is talking about terms here. I mentioned in the series that I did on post-traumatic slave syndrome uh, some of the background of the Tulsa race massacre. Some people will mistakenly label it a race riot, but upon further study, it's very clear that before the Greenwood District of Tulsa was burned to the ground and over 300 people were murdered. The city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was kind of a powder keg of racial tension. Black Wall Street, or the Greenwood District, was basically wiped off the map after an accidental situation in which a, a black shoe shiner tripped uh, into an elevator and accidentally, uh, I guess, grabbed onto the white uh, elevator operator to catch, you know, himself from falling. And the woman screamed, and then the 
witnesses kind of just took that and ran with it and escalated the story from this was an accident to things like they said that he raped the woman, that he assaulted the woman. When it all came out in the end, the white woman had basically reneged on any accusations or anything, but it was kind of that the environment at the time was that it was mob justice. There was no trial. There was no um, due process. It was just assumption led to a mob, led to the destruction of a thriving black community, which given the racial tensions that existed in Tulsa at the time, there's a lot of animosity white people towards these thriving black people because it was a it was an oil boom town and as things started to slow down white people who had came to Tulsa found themselves unemployed and they envied the thriving businesses and economic prosperity of the black community in Greenwood because again white supremacy and racism told them that they deserved to be living better than black people. And so during these riots, the the white mobs were actually looting the homes of affluent black people for torching them. And I'm going to link a podcast series that kind of covers this race massacre in more detail. I highly recommend checking it out. It is very, very informative. Uh, be sure to check out the show notes for more information on the Tulsa race massacre. But kind of getting back into what H.O. is talking about here, I'm going to give a quote. A note on policing specifically. When race conflicts have been instigated by white people, law enforcement has often responded on a spectrum from doing little to almost nothing to deputizing other white people to participate to being participants themselves. As a side note, just think about the Capitol insurrection in January, in which the police didn't really do anything to stop what was going on. But then also have yourself consider how things would have gone differently had the mob had been of all black and people of color. I'm just going to leave that with you. But let me continue with his quote. When instigated by black people... They have strong-armed protesters, arrested them, killed them. The Washington Post reported that eight people were partially blinded during a single day of the recent protest, May 30th, 2020, by police, police tactics like tear gas. Over and over in the aftermath of Black Rebellion, law enforcement, predominantly white law enforcement, has invested in more, quote, law and order, a decision you might guess that tends to make things worse, end quote. I'm going to give just an example. There was a time last year in 2020 where there were people protesting at the White House and for a photo op, Donald Trump's people uh, tear-gassed the protesters so that he could safely walk across the street to pose in front of a church with a Bible. And his aim or message behind that was to show the American people that he was a, quote, president of law and order. 
And I want to comment on that because the term law and order, at least for me as a person of color and as a person seeing how law enforcement has failed people of color, the term law and order is a trigger for me. To a person of color, I can speak for myself, when people like Trump said they want to demonstrate law and order, to me, what I'm hearing is that instead of law and order, I hear maintaining the status quo. And in case you're wondering, the status quo is maintaining the institutions of systemic racism and white supremacy. So it's a very loaded term. As you heard at the end of H.O.'s quote, he said, when this stuff is carried out by predominantly white law enforcement, it tends to make things worse. So I really like the segment that uh, H.O. provide, which was shared in the 1963 March on Washington, most famous for uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech, but this kind of outline actually serves as a great blueprint towards change with regards to systemic racism. And as a preface, because as I read this, you're going to be like, well, we have a lot of work to do. It's important to remember that it took centuries to build systemic racism to what we see today. So it's unreasonable to expect everything to change overnight. It's going to be multi-generational work, but that shouldn't be a deterrent to make people feel like they don't have a role in this because especially younger people tend to give up on things that require sustained attention unless they see instant gratification. And this is not the type of situation to expect instant gratification from, but it's still very important work that needs to be done so that our future generations and our children have a better quality of life than we do. So here's the quote. The march had a specific agenda. That agenda, or list of demands, if you will, was read by activist Bayard Rustin, the deputy director of the march, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I list them all below so you can read them and ask yourself which of them, after 57 years, have been met for black people. Number one, comprehensive and effective civil rights legislation from the present Congress without compromise or filibuster to guarantee all Americans access to all public accommodations, decent housing, adequate and integrated education, and the right to vote. Number two, withholding of federal funds from all programs in which discrimination exists. Three, desegregation of all school districts in 1963. Four, enforcement of the 14th Amendment, reducing congressional representation of states where citizens are disenfranchised. Five, new executive order banning discrimination in all housing supported by federal funds. Six, authority for the Attorney General to institute injunctive suits when any constitutional right is violated. Seven, a massive federal program to train and place all unemployed workers, Negro and white, on meaningful and dignified jobs at decent wages. Eight, a National Minimum Wage Act that will give all Americans a decent standard of living. Nine, a broadened Fair Labor Standards Act to include all areas of employment which are presently included. Ten, a federal fair em employment 
Practices Act barring discrimination by federal, state, and municipal governments and by employers, contractors, employment agencies, and trade unions. End quote. So as we listen to that list, we can see that there has been some progress done since uh, 1963, but in almost all of those 10 things listed, there's still a long way to go. And so it's kind of a blueprint, but also to-do list of things that we need to continue working towards for generations to come. So going along with this chapter, H.O. talks about the nuances of protesting. So here's a quote, as long as systemic racism exists, you can best believe there will be the need for people to protest it. Remember what they said in the Declaration of Independence. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. So that's a quote from the Declaration of Independence. So H.O. goes on to say, Protests, riots, revolts have been responses to repeated injury, and for what it's worth, none of them has gone as far as the response of the Declaration is talking about, which we know resulted in the Revolutionary War. They are also how some of the most healing, humane change has happened in this country, end quote. And so H.O. is not saying that we need to go to war over our current circumstances. However, it's going to require a lot of shaking up and changes in systems. And so H.O. goes on to talk about the concept of defunding the police. And I really appreciate the definition that he gives as it kind of explores both sides of what defunding the police is and what it is not. So, quote, Defunding the police doesn't mean abolishing the police, though there are more radical calls for that too. It instead means redirecting money from police budgets to other government agencies funded by the city. Defunding the police could mean more money for underfunded schools, for mental health programs, or for drug recovery programs, all of which can help reduce crime. Before you say there's little chance of that happening and much less working, Let me share with you that about a decade ago, Camden, New Jersey, a city once ranked number one on the FBI's list of cities with the highest number of violent crimes, with a murder rate as high as Honduras, debanded its police force and then rebuilt an entirely new one under county control using a number of now heralded progressive police reforms. Let me share that after the protests in Minneapolis, their city council made a historic pledge to dismantle the local police department and shift that money to community-based strategies. Let me share that New York and LA have also committed to cutting their police budgets. As well they should, the NYPD's annual budget is $5.5 billion. So big that if you were to compare it to other countries, yes, country, it would make it the 36th largest defense budget in the world. The world. We've got to think that grand. Finishing the work of protests in America is tantamount to finishing off racism. It's a big order, the biggest order, which is why we need all the good people fight injustice and inequality wherever we find it. End quote. As a mental health professional, I like some of these conversations that have been coming out from the concept of defund the police. For example, there have been instances where people who are mentally ill have been murdered by law enforcement because 
when there's a mental health emergency, they send out law enforcement, not trained mental health professionals. And I can't help but thinking if we had people that were actually trained to deal with mental health crises, that the outcomes would be much better because you're not showing up to a crisis with a weapon and it's not being responded to by law enforcement officers who, I've said this before, they receive less hours of training in the police academy than does your average cosmetologist or barber does in order to get their license to practice what they do. We need to send in people who know what they're doing in these sort of situations. So I really like the emphasis on community-based interventions. I think that that is one of the most powerful and beneficial things that needs to come of this conversation about defund the police. So the next chapter is talking about how someone can be an ally to these agents of change. So his definition of ally, quote, Someone who makes the commitment and an effort to recognize their privilege based on gender, race, sexual identity, etc., and works in solidarity with oppressed groups in the struggle for justice. Allies understand that it is in their own interest to end all forms of oppression, even those from which they may benefit in concrete ways. Allies commit to reducing their own complicity or collusion in oppression of these groups and invest in strengthening their own knowledge and awareness of oppression. The simple version is that an ally is a person from an empowered group who acts to help an oppressed group, even if it costs them the benefits of their power, end quote. What I really like was some of the tips that H.O. gives on how one can be a good ally. And also he talks about how or what you shouldn't do if you're trying to be an ally. So we'll get to that. So how to be a good ally, quote, you might not be able to control the powers that be, but you can make sure that your allyship comes from a pure place. Do good work, but don't make the mistake of caring more about your intentions than about the impact of your intentions or seeking out gratitude or praise. Make sure you aren't engaged in optical allyship, the kind that goes only so far as it takes to get the right post for social media. True allyship is a commitment to fight this fight for the long haul, long after it ceases to be a top-of-the-fold news item, long after the cameras have stopped capturing it. Not today, but tomorrow, next week, next year, next decade. End quote. That's important advice. In 2020, as most black people could probably co-sign, is that there were a lot of white people who reached out and said, how can I help? How can I make a difference? And it's a start. I'm not one of those people that wants to beat white people over the head because they're white. I mean, just like I didn't choose to be black, they didn't choose to be white. However, with that being said, when you are part of a majority, you have a lot of power and influence. And the call of being an ally is to use said influence to help those who are disenfranchised. And like the quote says, it may cost the benefits that you naturally receive from those privileges. And so it's a sense of sacrifice. With that being said, I've also seen a lot of folks who have gotten on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon for the optics of it. So for an Instagram post, for the feel-good moment. I had a 
a client last year uh, that I was working with, they became interested in protesting during a time that everyone was doing it. It, it was the, the trendy thing to do. And this person is white. And what really hurt me as a person of color, aside the fact from the part that I'm a therapist who invests in people's lives and genuinely cares about how things fare for them. But this person treated me, their therapist, like dirt when things got tough in their life. And this was all during the time when they were simultaneously saying that they wanted to protest for Black Lives Matter, but they're treating pretty much the only black person in their life like shit and not connecting the two. And obviously this is an isolated event. But it just goes to show that there are a lot of people who are in this for the Instagram post, for the clout, for the trend. And like the quote says, it's not something to just be on when it's the, the trending thing, but it's, it's multi-generational lifelong work. And so going off of that topic, before I get into the next quote, I want to kind of preface with this concept of, at least I've been hearing a lot about it lately, is that race itself is a social construct. And I think it's a complicated thing to grasp, but the way that H.O. puts this in the book helped me personally to understand it a little bit better. I cringe sometimes when people use that as a, a oh, race is a social construct. It's something that man made and therefore it's not relevant. Sometimes people take that and run with it and say, I don't see color. And it requires a lot of attentiveness to not get caught in one of the pitfalls with it. Because when you say race isn't a thing or that it was created by man, then it almost makes it a lot easier to use it as a scapegoat. And that's not what we need to enact the types of widespread change that I've been talking about uh, as I've reviewed this book. So here H.O.'s take on race as a social construct. So quote, when the first Africans arrived in 1619 in Virginia, there was no such thing as a white person. As far as the law was concerned, white people as a race didn't exist until 1681 when colonial American lawmakers sought to outlaw marriages between European people and others. Before that, people were known by their nation of origin, what we might now refer to as nationality or ethnicity. The laws prohibiting Europeans from marrying and having children with people of African descent forged the white race. Let's think what that means. Race was a political creation, an economic creation. All this hate developed to secure the interests of some 17th century dudes who wanted to get rich growing sugarcane and cotton, who wanted to make sure they'd always be the class on top, which is to say racism has always been about power, which is to say we invented racism, which is to say maybe we can learn to uninvent it too. End quote. So I'm going to conclude this section of the with the following. White privilege can assert itself in conversation in a few ways, so stay wary. Never dominate the discussion and try not to respond by reframing or reinterpreting what a black person or POC is saying. Instead of telling someone to, quote, calm down if they are, say, passionately recounting a racially charged incident, 
understand their emotion and work hard to hear them, and try not to refocus race-based discussions on other forms of privilege. For example, a white woman talking about patriarchy. This is not to say that other forms of oppression aren't valid, and indeed we need all the intersectional discussions we can get. It's just to say that the focus should be on the subject at hand, and also, this is not the oppression Olympics. End quote. I'll conclude by saying I really enjoyed this book. It was concise and relatively easy to read, so I highly encourage you to uh, grab a copy of Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man by Emmanuel Acho. Stay tuned for the next book in the Summer Book Club series. Uh, I'm going to switch gears and talk about some of the systemic racism that has gone into impacting Native Americans. So I'm going to be reading the book Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, An Indian History of the American West by D. Brown. Yeah, so take care and thank you so much for listening. Anchor is everything you need to make a podcast. And best of all, it's free. They offer creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor also distributes your podcast so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Did I mention that you can make money from your podcast no matter the size of your following? Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support this podcast by buying me a coffee. The link is in this episode's show notes. Thanks in advance.